you know, these game changers in Scripture that we've been talking about, it makes you kind of think through, they never knew that they would be a part of our Bible. You ever thought about that? People of the Bible really didn't capture that they would be in the text one day. I mean, when Paul wrote his letters, he didn't intend for that to be in the same book as the law. I mean, that was not a part of his comprehension. He, he didn't write Galatians so that it would be fit together with Genesis. He was writing to the church in Galatia. He, he didn't have this connective tissue moment of saying, hey, what I'm writing today is going to be a part of Scripture. Nor did the people that ran into Jesus genuinely believe that one day their lives would be put into the text either. So as we kind of look at the text today, as we as we start to study it, as we start to dissect what these people meant in Jesus' teaching, we have to kind of realize they had no idea that they would be an observation for us today. They didn't set out to be a part of our text. They lived their lives, and because they lived their lives, they got to be a part of Jesus' story. And listen, I, I think that there is a truth to start today with, if you'll allow me to, and that's this. Jesus intends for Christians to live their lives, whether they are applauded for it or not. He intends for you to live your life in a way that he could call upon you to do anything and you would say yes. That's the transformational truth of today. As we tend to look at Bible characters as their lives are exhibited before us and tend to think that they had it all put together. And today is a story of someone whose life had become unraveled. But to kind of get full text of this, we have to go backwards in text. If you want to open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 8 and verse 1, uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you. I encourage you to grab one or you can look at the text here in a minute on the screen. But before we get into that, I want to take you back in time to Leviticus chapter 20. You see, as, as we're kind of going through the text, Leviticus was written for the Levites to tell the people what God intended for them to do so that their lives would stay on path of following after God. Because believe it or not, the, the people of Israel, just like us, and the fact that we are so prone to do the wrong thing. Don't you feel that sometimes? Like you try your best, or you try your hardest, but you, you just kind of find yourself tending to do the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing or acting the wrong way, and it's frustrating and you don't know how to fix it. So Leviticus was written for the people in a time where they would bring sacrifices to the temple. And they would sacrifice at different times of the year for different reasons with different things, and they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would either sacrifice or, or kill a sheep or a lamb or a goat and they would then take it, and there was ways, rituals that they would do. The priest would then have to take the blood and ultimately put it upon the seat of mercy. And that's how the people would get mercy from their sins. It sounds like a lot of work, right? And believe it or not, there was people that didn't do it. I think we forget that in Scripture. There's people that just didn't show up to do it. They didn't care. They're like, hey, if God can't forgive me if I don't do things his way, then who cares? It's the same thing we say in society today. Hey, if I've got to follow this Jesus fella, if that's what it takes, I don't care. I'm not doing it. And so Leviticus 20 gives some things that happen if you stop forgetting God. And one of those is this. Leviticus 20 talks about if someone is caught in an adulterous affair, 
They're to take the man and the woman and to take them outside of town and stone them to death. You may be going, that sounds terrible. But here's the thing. God was setting up a system that would make people go, I don't want to commit adultery. Because if I do, see, we don't live in that society anymore. We live in a society where adultery is almost applauded. How do we know? It's in every TV show now, right? Doesn't matter if it's a kid's show or an adult show. Everybody's got adultery. It's like Oprah went to the TV station and said, you get adultery, you get adultery, you get adultery. And everybody's got adultery. And so we live in a post-sane culture, I believe, where moms and dads are idiots, where kids rule the world and do no wrong, where you can say whatever you want to say and everybody laughs at it. Isn't it funny that our punchlines now all have language in them? You see, in Leviticus, God was trying to keep people from this kind of world. And it may have sounded harsh, and it was, believe me. But people's eyes were wide open to what was happening. Here's the problem. Time went on. And as time went on, the church at the time became more and more rules-oriented than God-oriented. And so everybody had to live under rules rather than under the love of God. Could God forgive the sins of an adulterer? Yes, he could. How? Through sacrifice. It could have happened. And God wanted to. But they had lost sight of it. They enjoyed the rules more than the relationship. And maybe that's where we are today in our culture. That we start to realize that people are seeing more of our rules than they are seeing the relationship we have with God. Because of Jesus, he makes all things right. So here's what happens. We don't know the story before the story, but we know it went something like this. The priests were using pawns. How do we know? Because in this story, we only get the woman brought before Jesus. The man is nowhere to be found. What did Leviticus 20 say? If a man is caught in adultery, he and the woman are both to be taken outside of town and stoned. In the rhetoric we're about to hear, in the story we're about to see, the man will be nowhere to be found. So to set up this moment, the leaders, these law abiders, if you will, which I believe were completely false, and Jesus identifies this in them, they bring this woman caught in the act of adultery. So there's a setup, there's a sting that just happened in Scripture that we don't get. All we get is this, Jesus is teaching and he's, he's proclaiming truth, and in your Bible and in my Bible, it says, at the end of his teaching, everybody goes home. That's verse 53 of chapter 7. Everybody goes home to their house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why does he go to the Mount of Olives? Answer? To pray. This is one of his prayer places. So he goes and he prays. And I believe what happens at the Mount of Olives is God is about to instruct Jesus exactly what to do next. He says there's a sting that's happening. And just watch and see what happens. Jesus comes out at dawn. He went to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. So you can just imagine the scene. Here's the temple. It's a place where they don't want Jesus to be. And Jesus is sitting down, and he's teaching. And so here's all the crowd. And this is a perfect time for leaders of the law to draw attention to themselves. And so Jesus is in a place that they don't like, doing something they wish he wasn't doing, 
And now it's their time to shine. So let's look at verse 3 together. It says this, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Do you see what's happening in this moment? They've taken this woman caught in the act of adultery, and they don't stand to the side and say, Hey, Jesus, can you come over here? we got a matter we need you to help us with. They push this woman caught in the act of adultery into the middle of the crowd. Now, I, I, the next statement I'm about to make is probably PG-13, but I want you to capture the moment, if you will, with me. A woman caught in the act of adultery wouldn't have time to change her clothing. So get this fullness of the woman's shame without the man anywhere to be found. Do you catch the sense of this moment and how the leaders of the law were trying to make a statement for themselves in this moment? This woman's a pawn. She has nothing to do with what they're really trying to do. They're trying to rid themselves of Jesus. The woman's just a side effect of what they're trying to capture Jesus in because they know something about Jesus. Jesus was full of grace, and they thought that contradicted the law. So they were going to get a full crowd together. Here they are. And then they're going to capture Jesus in the middle of his frailty. Grace is what they think. And so here's the stage. People are listening. You can almost imagine them talking. What's he going to do? What is this all about? Someone saying, hide the kids. Women saying, come on, buddy, quit looking. You imagine this moment? Everybody's tense. Here's the disciples. Here's Jesus. Here's the temple. Here's the crowd. Here's the woman. Here's the leaders of the law saying to them, teacher, verse 4, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. It's amazing. Verse 5, in the law, you ready for the law? The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, which is a lie. They say, what do you say? What does the law say? The woman and the man. So they're already liars. They, they, we don't know who this man was. We don't know when she was caught. We don't know how long they set this thing up. But we know that Jesus knows something's off because they've already messed up the law. When you come with a law that doesn't have truth associated with it, you come with a lie. And Jesus has caught them in their own lie. So here's this woman, embarrassed, broken in front of people she may know from childhood. Her parents may have been in the crowd. We don't know. We know she's completely broken in this moment. She's in the middle of the crowd, and now she's being a teaching point for these leaders of the law and of the church to say, tell us what to do with this kind of woman. Verse 6, how do we know it was a trap? How do we know it was a sting? Verse 6 says this, they asked us to trap him in order that they may have evidence to accuse him. This is a setup. This is a setup of unprecedented moments. And Jesus sees right through it, but the crowd must have gone, what do we do? I mean, Jesus, you tell us what to do. You can imagine the chaos. You can imagine the disciples. All these men and women, especially young boys, would have gone to school and they would have recited the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, with a teacher over and over and over and over again. They may not have memorized it, but man, they had recited it enough that it was stuck in their memory. And so we get at this point, they know what Leviticus 20 says. They've heard it. In fact, it was probably preached in their synagogue. 
And so here's this pivotal moment, Jesus. What are you going to do with this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery? And verse 6 says this, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. That sounds like something a leader of the church and the law would have done, right? You see, what they would have done is they would have made their rebuttal. It would almost become a lawyer versus lawyer situation. My client has done this. And you say that. You can almost imagine those of us that went through O.J. Simpson, seeing the lawyers talk to one another. That's what should have happened. But Jesus stoops down, and he begins to write. And this is going to be debated throughout history, what he writes. Maybe it's just Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man is caught in the act of adultery, he and the woman should be taken outside. And maybe he underlined man a couple of times. Or maybe he wrote it and looked up at the man who's in the crowd hiding. Who knows what he writes? But all we know is this. In this pivotal moment where there should have been judgment issued, they came to the right judge. They came to the right man for the job. Because none of them really knew how to handle grace versus the law. So this is what Jesus does. He writes. Verse 7 said, When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, and I, I love this moment. We always kind of imagine Jesus writes for like 30 minutes uninterrupted. You know, he just like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. But the whole time he's writing, they're going, really? Get up, say something. I mean, come on, anybody? Are you going to dodge this one, Jesus? I mean, that's what you do, right? You dodge questions. Are you just going to say nothing, Jesus? What's going on? And finally, it says that Jesus stands up, and I really love movies. So when I see Jesus stand up, I see this like, the key change moment, or maybe even like the, the good, the bad, and the ugly start to play in the background, and Jesus, and they all go, ooh, ooh, ooh. we might have pressed a little bit too hard that time. <laughs> it was him. I was just hanging out. Whatever the moment, Jesus stands up, and this is what he says to them. The one without sin among you should be the first to throw the stone at her. I love this because this is what happens next. Then he stoops down again and continues riding on the ground. Y'all want to know my thoughts on this moment? He begins to write the name of sins down in arrows. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. And they're all going, oh, please stop riding. Um, or somebody, he writes the arrow and they go, In this moment, whatever he does, you got to imagine what the woman is thinking at this moment. You see, because judge and jury are now in. And what she hears the Savior of the world say is this. Any of y'all who are clean of sins, go ahead and throw the stone. And Jesus goes down and starts riding again. All I can imagine this woman doing is curling into a ball and saying, this is it. And the sound that happens next will change her life. Because it says this in Scripture, verse 9, When they had heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men, and only he was left with the woman in the center. Here's what this means. One by one, they all began to leave. And now it's just Jesus and the woman 
at the front of the temple complex. And all she can hear is the riding of Jesus in the sand. And then he stops. Here's what he says. Verse 10, Jesus stands up again. And he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Here's the problem with this. Leviticus 20 does not say only those without sin can throw the stone. It doesn't say it in Leviticus 20. It just says anyone caught in the act of adultery should be sent outside of town and stoned. See, Jesus is helping them understand the grace of God in the law. And he says to them, if you have sin, get out. But if you don't, go ahead and throw it. Because you should. That's the law. At this moment, it's just her and Jesus. And Jesus says, where are your condemners? Where are they? And she finally looks up. And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. The trouble with the law is this. The law is not abolished by grace, but fulfilled. You see, Jesus doesn't get rid of the law. He is the law. He is the one that fulfills it. He changes the law not by saying it's gone. He changes the law by saying, I can fulfill everything. I can forgive you. Here's the problem with the law. The law this side of heaven has consequences. It just does. If you go and steal today, God can absolutely forgive you. But the government may not. And Jesus says the government should exercise authority over us. And so if you steal from someone, there's a good chance you're going to jail. Can God forgive you? Absolutely. God is rich in grace. He's got more grace than you've got sin. I promise you that. You can't sin enough to outdo God's grace. There's no possibility of that. Here's the problem with it. We will find ourselves living as graceaholics in the faith rather than fulfilling what God has called us to do according to who he is. Have you ever seen these people that sin willfully saying, oh, God can forgive me, so who cares? I can just tell you that God cares. I can promise you this. If you're locked in sin and claim Jesus, at some point you're going to hit a wall. It's going to happen not because God hates you, because he loves you so richly he doesn't want you to keep living in destruction. At some point, it's got to change. My wife despises grates that are built into the sidewalk. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Where they cut it out and they have like drainage underneath it. They just put a grate over the top of it. When we're walking down a street, if there's a grate, she walks around it. I live on the wild side. I go clunk clunk oh clunk 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 and she's like please stop that you know what I just tested my wife's grace now it's made out of metal it should hold but y'all know and I know that there is YouTube full of videos of guys like me standing on grates and jumping and falling in they're hilarious that's the problem with the law there are some things that should be fairly normal to us. And listen, the Ten Commandments, we've heard all of our lives. Things like, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you should honor your mother and father. 
You should remember the Sabbath. You should, there's only one God. You should keep his name holy. Like we, we get the Ten Commandments, but they're not built in as restrainers. They're not like that little kid that's walking through Walmart with the little kid vest with the little leash on it. That is not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a guardrail along the side of a mountain. Yes, you can drive through it, and it may be exhilarating for like two seconds. But the end of that jump is destruction. When God provides the law, he didn't do it so people would die. He did it so that people might live. That's why the Bible exists for us today. It's not so that we can give it to our neighbors and say, well, if you don't like this, I want you to open your mouth. I'm going to choke you with the scripture. It's so that we would give it to them in pieces that taste good and show them with our lives that Jesus has changed us. Listen, I believe that there is a world worth of people who are looking for Christians that live a life in God's obedience, who are experiencing the fullness of him, to see what that looks like. Because they just haven't seen it. They see Christians whose cars have hit the guardrails on both sides, saying, I'm going to do it however I want. And ultimately, their car looks just like their neighbor's. They want to see what it looks like when a Christian starts to follow after God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, that doesn't lean on its own understanding, but in all its ways acknowledges Christ. When we start to do that, we start to change the world one step at a time. People are looking for that. And they're looking for that in you and me. They were looking for that in Jesus that day. And certainly there was three people that had different definitions of the law that day. You see, one came in fully convicted of the law. You see, she knew she was done for. She had probably seen other people stoned to death for adultery. So she knew what her fate was. And so she knew the law so differently than those people that were judge and jury over her life. Then there was those that came to condemn her. They saw the law as something that they needed to show the world that they stood behind no matter what. That they were willing to put someone's life on the line to prove a point so much. You see, these guys that showed up with this woman caught in the act of adultery brought the stones with them. They're ready to kill her for the sake of teaching Jesus a lesson. But see, there was one person that lived the law. Who abided in the law who fulfilled the law. And that was Jesus. He's the one guy that could have picked up every stone and stoned this woman to death that day and, and had the right to, and no one would have condemned Jesus for it. Of all the people there, Jesus is the one that could have executed this woman justly. Isn't it funny that we as followers of Christ execute people with our words and our actions every day? And Jesus is the one that didn't do that. Here's the thing. A lot of people want to say that Jesus says nothing to this woman. That this moment probably doesn't change her much, but i got to tell you something. She showed up to that meeting at the temple that day ready to die. And Jesus gave her a lesson on how to live. I mean, it's, it's the greatness of Jesus. But see, here's what sin does. Those men that brought her that day lost the law long ago. But sin always points a finger at everyone else's but you. 
You ever heard this? Whenever you point at somebody, you always have three fingers pointing back at you. That's what sin does. Yeah, I might have sinned, but they did this to me first. Yeah, I might have sinned, but that's out there for me. I might have sinned, but that person did this first. And so we all have these pointed fingers at one another today in society, saying, if they will do that, then I will do this. Well, if they would act like this, I would act like that. And we got to stop the insanity. Those of us in Christ have got to quit pointing fingers and start pointing our faces to heaven and saying to the Lord, I want to be like Jesus who had every way and reason to point everything at this woman and say, you deserve to die. However, I don't condemn you either, but stop this. Stop this now. The insanity of Christianity is this. Most fingers pointing in Christianity are pointing indoors. How about you act like that? How about you act like that? They said this about the dress I wore on Easter. Well, that guy over there looks at me weird. Hey, they, they don't play the songs I like. Hey, that preacher keeps wearing cool tennis shoes, and I wish I had them. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> at some point in the life of the church, we've got to come alive again to the way that Jesus saw the world. For God so loved the world, he sent Jesus not to condemn the world, verse 17 says, but through him the world might be saved. The job of the church is not a condemnation fair. The job of the church is a rescue mission. When you come to know Christ, you put on a new vest from wounded to warrior, and you're sent into a field of wounded people searching who you might save. That is the call of the church. That was Jesus' call that day. He had full right of condemnation. But Jesus didn't come on a mission to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the enemy's job. He came to save and preserve and point others towards his Father. That's our job as well. When we look more and more like Jesus, we start to do the things more and more like Jesus did. Which means in the course of our faith, our hands must be dirty, our eyes must be weeping, our feet must be bloodied for the cause of Christ because that's what happens when we fall in love with him. We start to move. We start to act. We start to say things a little different. It changes the whole course of our lives. Jesus holds that right to condemn and always points to grace. Why is it that our church as a whole won't do that? I'm not talking about the little QC. I'm talking about the big church C. Why is it that the people don't see that the church is the hope? Because we don't live in it. So our response to grace is this. Our response to grace of Jesus is continual obedience. That means this. Grace is being poured into your life all the time. Never stops. It doesn't have to refill. It's just going to keep coming into your world. Our job is not to just waterlog ourselves, but to pour out grace to our friends and our neighbors. To show them how good Jesus is. To show them that Jesus can love them. To show them the inclusion of Jesus into our world. Here's the problem. The inclusion of Jesus is not the absence of sin. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. She is what we would say caught in the act of sin. She is a sinner. And I'm one of them, so let's just... I'm just saying... What, what needs to take place in our lives is this. When Jesus saw sin, 
he saw salvation. When we see sin, we see condemnation. You see? See how they act? You see what they're doing, God? Smite them. Almighty smiter. And Jesus is going, save them. Almighty Jesus. Changes the whole story of how we see our world. When we see sin, we should always see a path towards Jesus. When we see sin, we should always see a way to kill out condemnation in our life and point to its grace. You see, our world is looking for it. And believe it or not, tomorrow, I promise you, this is going to happen. It may happen today. I can promise you Monday it's going to happen. You're going to have an opportunity to stand at a temple gate. You're going to have an opportunity to see someone caught in a sin through a joke, through a TV show, through whatever. And my prayer is this, that tomorrow when that happens, your eyes are going to open up and you're going to go, oh man, my pastor just preached on this. Oh, I've got to show them grace. How do I show them grace? How do I show them grace? God, help me to show them grace. Instead of laughing at the punchline, point them to grace. Instead of applauding the wrong thing, let's celebrate the saving thing. Because in this courtyard of people with a wounded woman in the middle and a crowd of condemning people, Jesus always saw himself one-on-one with this one woman. And he said in his heart, I can forgive her. I can forgive her. From the very get-go, from the very moment they saw this woman calling the act of adultery, Jesus already had salvation on his lips. And so should we. Let me just ask you to do me a favor. Bow your head, if you will, and close your eyes. This is not a biblical mandate This is just so you can kind of drown out all the distractions around you for just a couple of seconds. Maybe today you feel like that woman brought before the crowd. Maybe today you feel like someone that's been wounded by others. Maybe it's inside the church. I think that's a real thing. Maybe you've been in a group of of what we would say would be Christians, and they have pointed out all your sins and all your frailties and pushed you out the door. And you've been wounded. Let me just remind you that the church was there that day with this woman caught in the act of adultery. And they were there to tell her she wasn't welcome. Today, let me just tell you something. Whether the church has wounded you in the past or not, whether you feel like you're caught in a sin that you can't get out of or not, We all stand before a Savior today, wounded. And we all need salvation. The crowd has their rocks in hand for you. They always will. I promise you that. Especially inside the context of people that claim believers of Jesus, they're always going to bring rocks with them. But there is one who never picks up a rock. There's one that simply stands and waits for the crowd to dissipate waits for the dust to settle and he's going to ask you the same question 
that I believe he asked this woman. Who condemns you today? Who condemns you? Who's the one that says you can't make it out of this? Who's the one that says you're too far gone? Who's the one that says you're too broken, that you're too messed up, that you've got too many scars? Who is it? Your response is going to be the same, I believe. You're going to look around and finally see that there's one person in the crowd that really can condemn. It's not a pastor on a stage. It's not a church member in a pew. It's not a deacon in a room. It's not a life group leader. It's not a a devotion leader. It's not a worship leader, a student minister, or a children's leader. It's none of those people. Jesus has all the right to condemn, but he's also the same one that says this to you. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing right now and know this. I can forgive you. Today, has Christ forgiven you of your sins? If he has, let me just invite you into a time of celebration before a God who loves us enough to stop condemnation and give us grace. Today, if you know this Jesus and he has changed your life, we should celebrate him. Today, if you don't know this Jesus, Today is your day to come to know him. I pray that you would come and find myself or Dale this morning, that you would just give your life over to him. You'd say, I need Jesus to take my life, my wounds, my scars, my sin, all the stuff that's just tearing me up, and I need him to change my life. Today is your day to see The crowd always dissipates, but there's always one that remains, and he's for you. His name is Jesus. Would you give him your life today? Would you let him change your heart today? If you will, I want to pray for you, and then we're going to stand. Today is a day to give your everything to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray you'd help us to see that you have every right to be the condemnating factor of our lives. You have every right to judge us, Lord. You have every right, God, to say of our lives that we're done and to end it. God, you're also the sustainer of our lives. You're a God who loves us so much that you sent your very best to us in the form of Jesus, that all that would believe in him would not be simply condemned, but God, that we would live right. God, that you would show us, Lord, that when you step into our lives, you change our story. So God, change our story today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.